0: I next met with nurse practitioner Victoria Cinnabaldi for another perspective on prostate cancer, and to begin, we return to the issue of radium-223. Ms. Sinibaldi commented on how she prepares patients being treated with this agent.
1: I will generally explain that it is a liquid radiation, and I actually point out that it's very similar to samarium or the strontium. And I said that it's less toxic. I say that its focus is a little bit different. and, I'm trying to actually get at the fact that it is very similar to the other radiopharmaceuticals, but yet less toxic, so that I'm at their understanding. The patients that we generally will give it to are patients that are castration-resistant, so they are already on hormones. And they have bone disease, so they are already on some type of bone treatment, such as the denosumab or the zolindronic acid.
0: At your institution, who gives it and sort of what happens when they get it?
1: So at my institution, we recently had our nuclear medicine open up an area where they will give it, but we here in medical oncology are very uncomfortable with that. We would like our radiation oncology department to give it, and that's who we refer all of our patients to, is to rad and they do the studies with us, and the patients that are also not on our studies, we still send them to our radiation oncology department.
0: And are there any safety precautions or concerns with radium-223 administration?
1: The concerns would be the same concerns as though you were giving one of the other radiopharmaceuticals in terms of you know that the body fluids of the patient, their urine, their feces, after they've received the RAD223, they need to use gloves, they need to be sitting. For our gentleman, we ask them to sit, urinate, flush the toilet twice. We tell them that they are not radioactive, but that if spills, if they actually have any spills in the bed, they need to wash the linens, they need to wipe up the floors, but that they are not radioactive and don't have to stay away from their loved ones. If they don't have any erectile function, so I don't have to worry about them having sexual intercourse, but if they are potent, we would tell them to use condoms. And we would actually tell them for a week would be good. And then after that, the precautions are sort of loose. I tell my patients that this medication can lower their blood counts, but it has less myelosuppression, and I say that in the way they can understand, that it decreases the blood counts to a lesser extent than it does with the other radiopharmaceuticals, that we will watch it. We will monitor their blood count. If their blood count is too low before the dosing, the dosing will be held. I tell them that they could get a little bit of nausea and vomiting. They could have some diarrhea. They can have some flare in their pains, And those are basically the main side effects that I have seen. Some of my patients have experienced a little bit of abdominal gas and a little bit of GI upset, but we give them a little bit of Zofran, and that tends to help. I tell them to keep very hydrated during the entire time. But those are the basic recommendations that I discuss.
0: And how long does it take to receive this treatment? How long does it take How often do they get it, and how many cycles are given?
1: So if we give it standard, we will actually give the patients the dosing every four weeks, and this all depends on their counts. I have not had any patient that has had to miss the dose due to a decrease in their blood counts, but it is a precaution. The studies have shown that there is myelosuppression, but I have not had anyone miss the dose, We tend to try to give at least six cycles. Some patients will have a flare in their bone pain, and they will say, gee, you know, I don't think it's working. In my own experience, I have not seen any PSA declines, but I have seen some improvement in pain. But then I've seen also the bone flare pain, which will last a couple days, and then it'll go away. And we generally manage that with oxycodone.
0: What about using radium-223? You said it's given every month. At the same time, other therapies that are given, for example, patients often are going to receive either bisphosphonate, often zoledronic acid, or denosumab. Can that be used at the same time?
1: We do not stop it. We continue to give it, and we have seen no problem with that.
0: Let's move on and talk a little bit about new directions in hormonal therapy, and I'm curious, again, kind of getting back to you know how you explain things to patients, if you maybe can talk a little bit about what you say to people to explain how various forms of hormonal therapy work. So LHRH agonist, a drug like abiraterone, a drug like enzalutamide, how do you explain to them the way the drug, why it helps them?
1: Originally, when they are placed on the luprolide, we will say that we want to take away the testosterone, we want to decrease the testosterone to castrate levels, and giving them the lupilide will do that through the testicles. And that initially, when they're diagnosed with metastatic disease, we believe that all the tumor cells are alike and that they will respond to hormonal therapy. The unfortunate part is that over a period of time, some of those cells grow smart, and they learn how to grow in the absence of hormones and they mutate. So therefore, we need to add additional medications that are hormones that work to suppress the testosterone that is from the adrenal glands, that we say that there is some testosterone that comes from the adrenals. It's very small, but given an antiandrogen such as the nilandron, and the bicalutamide, when we give that, it will block the testosterone that is made from the adrenal glands and hopefully that will decrease the circulating hormones that the prostate cancer cells are feeding on. We tell them that although their disease progresses despite one hormonal manipulation, that there are studies that have shown that given subsequent hormonal therapies, that they will also respond to them. Before the abiraterone was developed, we were giving ketoconazole, which is a SIP inhibitor, and we just say that we are trying to target different pathways that the prostate cancer cells are targeting and that the prostate cancer cells that have grown smart may respond to that. And so therefore, we were giving ketoconazole plus the steroids. When the abi actually came on the market, we said that it was a similar drug, that it did block one of the pathways so that the super testosterone and all the other pathways that the cancer uses, that would block that and therefore could benefit them. We did not feel that patients that received ketoconazole and had failed would respond to the abiadarone. But we have tried that, and yes, some patients respond, many of them don't respond. With regard to the enzalutamide, we say that this actually blocks the androgen receptor. So basically, we're trying to block the receptor sites, and it is another hormonal manipulation, and patients may respond to that.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you counsel patients about to begin these three types of hormonal therapy? What would you say to a patient about to begin luprolide in terms of what to expect or what to tell you about, what you would say to somebody on abiraterone and what you would say to somebody about to start enzalutamide?
1: So patients who start luprolide, I tell them that this is hormonal therapy. It is not benign therapy, it's quite different from chemotherapy, but it still has side effects. I tell them that the side effects include hot flashes, anemia, osteoporosis, fatigue, muscle weakness, erectile dysfunction, those are the major ones. The one side effect that we actually look at the most is a metabolic syndrome where patients will develop maybe high blood sugar, hypertension, high cholesterol. I tell them that they need to change their lifestyle a little bit if they are not participating in a healthy lifestyle i will tell them that they need to watch their diet because they will have a tendency to gain more weight due to the potential for fatigue they will tend to be less active so they need to embark in some type of exercise regimen i also tell them that they will need to begin calcium plus vitamin d supplementation in an effort to maintain bone strength
0: What do you find overall, globally, in terms of when you give an LHRH agonist, what fraction of patients, if any, just sort of cruise through it like nothing? And how many people have enough problems that, you know, it really is a great concern to them?
1: I'm going to say that probably 25%, if that, are the patients that have problems. The other patients just pretty much sail through it. They are the patients that actually think to themselves that this is my life, a little bit of hot flashes I can deal with. They tend to adapt the more healthier lifestyle. I guess I would say that over a period of time, I have seen this mindset change. So more and more patients are more receptive to actually changing to a more healthier lifestyle.
0: So one of the concerns, it's funny, when you started talking, you said 25%, I thought you were going to say 25% cruise through it and everybody else has problems because you hear so much, not so much the, you know, metabolic things that people can't feel, but about people just not feeling good. You know, they don't like feel like themselves. They don't have libido, et cetera. Again, is this something like a quality of life point of view that bothers a lot of patients, or most of them, you know, sort of get used to it or, you know, don't have a problem?
1: In my experience, most patients tend to adapt to it. They tend to adjust to it. Their erectile dysfunction, hot flashes, and I'm not sure if it's because at Hopkins I will see a special patient population.
0: Maybe more motivated.
1: Yes, more motivated. They
0: came to the Mecca. (laughs)
1: Yes, and they have searched the internet. They know what side effects to expect. We are just reinforcing or just we're actually saying to them, this is what to expect. Most patients will experience these side effects, but they are not side effects that you can't live with, and that with regard to erectile dysfunction— many men have come to us and say, you know, this is a big thing to me. And we say there are other ways to express love other than having sexual intercourse. And I don't know what it is, but they seem to accept that. Very few patients don't accept that. And in general, we give this discussion to both the patient and their significant other. So both of them are in the room. Both of them hear the side effects. Both of them know the significance of having a diagnosis of prostate cancer, especially metastatic disease, where they're actually going to get hormonal therapy.
0: So in a second, I want you to contrast that to what you say to people about to begin one of these newer agents. But one other question in terms of LHRH agonist, which is there is a strategy out there that, you know, aim is to try to improve quality of life of what's called intermittent androgen deprivation, which is, you know, that you give it for a while, the patient has a response, and then you stop it and kind of allow their hormones to, you know, go back to normal, feel better again. And then when the tumor starts getting worse, you start the treatment back up. First of all, do you do that at all? And if so, do you see that these men really do have improved quality of life when you give them a break?
1: Yes. We treat patients with intermittent hormonal therapy. We do feel that it gives them an improved quality of life because many of them will feel as though their energy has come back and their potency comes back. After a prolonged period of time, their potency may not come back. But In my experience, they're giving them the intermittent hormonal therapy early on, it only takes us two injections, two three-month injections to actually bring that PSA down to undetectable levels. We tend to give intermittent hormonal therapy to patients who only have evidence of biochemical relapse. Patients that have nodal involvement, if their CAT scan completely normalizes After six to nine months, we will consider treating them with intermittent hormonal therapy. So yes, it does improve their quality of life for the time that we can give it. And we try to give it as long as possible.
0: I guess the other thing that I've heard about is you have to look at more than whether they stop the treatment. Like the day they stop the treatment is not going to be the same day that their hormones return. I've heard there's often a delay And some of these men it takes a while so they're still even though the drug has stopped they're still kind of in this sort of state of hormone deficiency for a while have you seen that
1: Oh, that is absolutely true. So when we give the injections, we give three-month injections versus the six-month injections. And it does take these men longer to recover. Even if you wait the three months when they would be due for their next injection, their testosterone level seems to not have recovered. It generally will take around, I'm going to say... Six months to almost a year sometimes before their testosterone really recovers. When we treat patients with intermittent hormonal therapy, we will monitor PSAs and serum testosterones every three months. However, we may not see them until like maybe every six months. We keep in contact with these patients a lot of times via phone as long as their serum testosterone is low and their PSAs are low, there's no reason for them to come back for a follow-up visit. As soon as their PSA starts to rise and that generally coincides with their serum testosterone, that's when we will actually bring them back.
0: You know, another phenomena that I've heard about, I'm curious what your experience is, is what I've heard called PSA anxiety. You know, patients coming in with their PSAs graft and et cetera, et cetera, And certainly prostate cancer is very different than many of the other solid tumors we deal with in that you have this marker out there. How often do you see people sort of overly focused on PSA and how do you sort of deal with it?
1: I'm going to say that the majority of my patients have PSA anxiety. That is something that I don't know how we will ever address or actually have a cure for that. As long as a patient has a diagnosis of prostate cancer, they will always have PSA anxiety. They will do it all the time. What they will do is, even if we do not order a a PSA, they will get some other doctor to order a PSA. While they're on our studies, (laughs) they will go and do a PSA. We have some studies where we blind PSAs, but these patients want to know about their PSA, so we will tell them that... If they have them, they cannot show it to us. But they do. They will get other doctors to do them. They will even do daily PSAs sometimes. Wow. And there's no way we can stop it because our patients are more on the affluent side. We have patients that come here. You're absolutely right because we are supposed to be the mecca. And they don't care how much it costs. They are just very fixated on that PSA.
0: So, you know, one thing that I think I'm seeing, and I'm going to try a little experiment with you just to see how it works, is that the course of men with metastatic prostate cancer, typically it seems like the overall global course that these men are having has changed over the last few years. It almost kind of reminds me a lot of breast cancer that, you know, there's not this explosive downhill course that you might see, say, with pancreatic cancer. I hear about a lot of men receiving multiple lines of treatment, metastatic disease, like they do in breast cancer, three, four, five lines of treatment. And we've already talked about a bunch of new treatments or old treatments. So I'm just kind of curious, just off the top of your head, who is the last man in your practice who died? Let's hear what happened to him.
1: You're absolutely right. It has changed. Prostate cancer has changed. The last patient that died recently. This is a gentleman that actually was found to have prostate cancer at an early stage. He underwent a radical prostatectomy and did really well and thought he was cured. And it wasn't actually until 10 years later, because he was diagnosed at an early age, that he had biochemical relapse. Again, because we were monitoring this patient very closely... You're absolutely right. He did go through several lines of hormones. We tend to give hormones until we believe that the patient has castration-resistant disease and that they're symptomatic. So symptoms actually will drive us to administer chemotherapy sooner rather than later. If patients remain asymptomatic, which is what happened to this gentleman, he remained asymptomatic. So he did go through a series of hormones and then went on to pursue clinical trial treatments.
0: Now, how old was he when he developed prostate cancer? And how much later was it that he was diagnosed with the Mets?
1: So he was 50. He was a very young man, a very young man. And when he developed METS, it was about 10 years later, he was in his 60s. So again, he had a family and he was very active. He was a very prominent man. So again, we tended to give him any type of treatment that we thought would not decrease his overall quality of life.
0: How long did he have the metastatic disease? How old was he when he died?
1: He was 70.
0: So he lived with metastatic disease for 10 years.
1: Yeah, 10 years.
0: So he had a 20-year course, again, thinking about breast cancer, and lived with metastatic disease for 10 years. About how many different treatments did he receive while he had metastatic disease? He got chemo, I'm sure.
1: Yes, he did get chemo.
0: Different kinds or just a docetaxel?
1: He had the docetaxel and mitoxantrone.
0: And how about hormone therapies? You mentioned he had androgen deprivation. Yes. How long ago did he die?
1: He died, oh, about two months ago.
0: Two months ago. So, did he receive enzalutamide and abiraterone while he was being treated?
1: He received enzalutamide. So we gave him enzalutamide versus the abiraterone, And we did that because of the steroids.
0: Did you have a particular concern in terms of steroids with him? Was he a diabetic or? Yes. He was. Oh, interesting. Yes. Adult onset with non-insulin dependent.
1: So what happened was after he was treated with hormones and we did treat him with ketoconazole and hydrocortisone, and then when he was on the hydrocortisone, he developed the diabetes.
0: Hmm, interesting.
1: And then we tapered him off, but the diabetes remained, so he was placed on, by his primary care physician, he was placed on a hypoglycemic.
0: Wow, interesting. Where were his metastases, and how much of a problem, if any, was he having with the bone?
1: So early on, he was not having any problems, and yes, he developed metastasis in the spine and in the pelvis, but again, it wasn't until the last year that he actually developed bone pain. He developed the metastasis, and we treated it, but it wasn't until the last year that he actually started having the pain.
0: And did he receive you know, either denosumab, zoledronic acid, or radium-223?
1: Yes, he received zoledronic acid.
0: Hmm. And what about, I guess, I don't know in terms of what was going on with him in terms of radium-223 recently approved. Did he have extensive disease outside of the bone?
1: No, it was mainly bone disease. The reason why he... Did not receive radium two twenty three is because that was recently FDA approved, right?
0: Right. So he and have missed And we it.
1: only had access to that right. through clinical trials.
0: So looking back on his case, do you think that there would have been a time that he could have benefited from radium two twenty three?
1: I do. I do believe that we would have tried to have given that, or that would have been one of our options. The reason is because he did have bone mets, and that was exactly where his disease was, and he was complaining of pain. So he might have benefited from that. We would tend to give that first because of the fact that it doesn't decrease the, you know, although it can cause myelosuppression, I have not seen it a whole lot. And in patients that receive radiopharmaceuticals, our biggest concern is the myelosuppression because that will prevent us from giving other subsequent treatments, and if we want to give clinical trial therapy, we need these patients to have a good performance status. Our patients are not ready to give up. That's one thing that I've learned about prostate cancer patients. They may say that I've lived my life, you know, I've been through a lot, but they keep hoping that something out there will actually be available while they are still living. So they're not ready to die yet. So we tend to continue just to give them treatments. As long as their performance status is good, we will treat them.
0: So how long did you know this man? When did you begin taking care of him?
1: I began taking care of him when his PSA started to rise, and he actually was diagnosed with Mets. That's when we actually get the referral.
0: So you took care of him for 10 years with metastatic disease? Mm-hmm. What did you see in him and I don't his loved ones? Did he have a spouse? Or who came with him to the clinic?
1: His wife came with him all the time.
0: What did you see in the two of them over the 10 years that you worked with them while he had metastatic disease in terms of what their lifestyle was like, what their state of mind was like? You know, what was it like for them?
1: So they always were anxious. He was very anxious and she was more anxious. So I always find that the loved one is always the more anxious of the two. And I'm not sure whether or not he just hides it to be a little bit stronger to keep them together. And as his disease progressed, she became more protective of him. And he became more, although he was anxious, he, you know, he kept trying to play things down a little bit to say that things were not bad. But I find that to be very common, where the patient with prostate cancer will tend to try to say things are not so bad just to keep their loved ones so that they don't get too down in the dump. So it's more of a support system.
0: And do they have children?
1: Yes. Yes. Two little children, but they were grown when he died. And I, when I'm saying grown, maybe about in their 20s.
0: Hmm. So he must have become a father right around the time he was diagnosed originally, maybe. Yeah. Interesting. What kind of work did he and his wife do?
1: So she didn't work, but he worked and he worked for the government.
0: Hmm. And what about the last year of his life and the end of his life? First of all, did he go into hospice? And if so, for how long?
1: So the unfortunate part is he only agreed to hospice during the last week of his life that he was still living, because he was still hoping that we would have some type of treatment for him.
0: So you had brought this up previously? Yes. And he didn't want to do it? Yes. How much earlier did you bring it up?
1: We tend to, so I'm just thinking to myself, it was a month before we told him that, you know, unfortunately, we were reaching the end. And at that point, he said he wasn't ready to give up. And I remember that his last treatment was with oral cytoxan dexamethasone.
0: Wow. How long before he died?
1: I'm going to say when we talk about hospice, so which was about a month before, we talked about hospice and the patient said, oh, isn't there something, you know? Um, and the oral cytoxin, we find that it's not very toxic. Some patients will get some type of benefit. But again, this had steroids with it, and then we thought to ourselves, yes, we know he has diabetes, but yes, these steroids could help him out a little bit, maybe make him feel a little bit better. So that was the reason why we prescribed it. He took it, but unfortunately, he got better for a couple days and then was downhill.
0: I'm kind of curious what the palliative problems were at the end of his life. You mentioned that he had bone pain. What were the dominant issues of the last few weeks of his life, and how comfortable or uncomfortable was he?
1: He was very uncomfortable because of bone pain. That was the issue, and that is an unfortunate symptom, because it's very difficult to control pain. You know, you give pain medication, you give the narcotics, but then they have the nausea and the vomiting. They get to the point where they don't feel like even taking any food in. It is very difficult. And we try to bring in our palliative pain team to actually help us with this. But again, the patient has really progressed to the point where it's almost days that he's gonna survive. And I'm thinking to myself, we tend to bring a lot of the palliative care team in a little too late, but it's not based on our fault. It's the patient is not willing to accept the, quote, palliative care. They keep wanting to try. And then when everything has just gone amok and their disease has progressed to a point where we can't control things is when they're willing to accept other people from the outside to help them.